Today's guest is the very special Rachel Weiss Riley. She's the director of Data Clinic, the Data and Tech for Good initiative of Two Sigma. Now, if you don't know what Two Sigma is, they are a New York City-based hedge fund that uses technological methods like artificial intelligence and machine learning for their trading strategies. Rachel, Rachel holds a doctor in epidemiology from Cooney School of Public Health, a master's from Hunter College, and a bachelor of science from Brown University. She's a super smart lady and serves in the inaugural New York City Open Data Advisory Council. All right, let's meet Rachel, shall we? How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child leave a movement? Hello, Greta, anyone? And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make or break moments that make social impact so impactful. Good morning. I am so excited to have Rachel Weiss Riley, who is here with us today. Rachel is the director of Data Clinic. Before you ask and think, what is Data Clinic? That's where we're going to start our conversation today. Rachel, how are you? Thank you for being here. I am good. Rebecca, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here and, where, and chat with you. Where are you based out of? So um, I'm currently in New Jersey, which is uh, where I live, but uh, Two Sigma, um, which I'll go into a little bit more later, um, is has headquarters in New York. So typically on a more normal than what we're in now, sort of an environment, we would be in New York. Awesome. Are you staying working from home? Yes, we are remote with um, optional office use for now until uh, a TBD date, depending on, you know, what happens with Delta variant, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I have three little kids, and so we're still trying to figure out what school is going to look like in, in a couple weeks and, you know, what the, the new normal is going to be, since I don't think there's any real indication that we could ever go back to whatever normal used to be. <laughs> Oh man, both my mom and my sister are teachers and they're like, they're in the same boat. They're just, especially with sort of the new restrictions and what that looks like here. It's yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird world. That's post pandemic. Well, I won't even say post pandemic. This last phase of pandemic has been like a, it's just a weird, weird, weird world. Um, Rachel, let's start with data clinic. Like what is data clinic? Yeah, sure. So data clinic is the data and tech for good arm of two Sigma and we provide pro bono data science and engineering support to lots of different types of mission-driven organizations. And these are, for the most part, on a project basis. And for listeners who might be unfamiliar with Two Sigma, uh, Two Sigma is a financial sciences company, but it really, it looks, it feels, and it acts much more like a technology company, employing hundreds of data scientists and, and hundreds of engineers, um, most of whom who don't actually have a background in finance. So. Data Clinic uh, is so named because it's a bit of a hat tip to a legal clinic, where in a similar vein, we leverage our core data and engineering skill sets by enabling employees to volunteer their time to work on a really well-scoped out project in collaboration with a nonprofit, an academic, or even a government partner. And you know, over the last couple of years, we've really expanded our scope uh, to 
also include open source tools and lots of different data products to hopefully scale beyond our one-on-one -on -one project and partner support to, to hopefully enable more people and more organizations to use data to really drive their work forward. Okay, so I'm like, I will say, you know, I work in the social impact space. I appreciate data. I understand why it's important. I love when it's explained to me, but I'll say I'm a little data dumb. Like I don't, I, I don't always fully understand. Um, you know, I don't, I can't say I fully understand everything that you just said. So <laughs> when you talk about, so let's, let's bring it down to, we'll say, we'll bring it down to my level, but also maybe some of the folks who are listening um, level as well. When you think of like what, what is the most, you know, impactful outcome of some of the pro bono work that gets done? Like you had to do, you know, your elevator pitch to some not-for-profit though. They're probably so stoked and excited because they know data better than I do. And they'll say like, you'll say at the end of this project, this is what you're going to be able to accomplish. Like what, what is it? What is that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think I want to explain a little bit about partnerships and, and mm. the importance of, of the partnership aspect of these types of collaborations. Um, and from a personal note, like I, I really do believe that that data, if it's employed mm. ethically and responsibly, can be empowering. And I personally really enjoy supporting organizations and sort of upping their data game. Yeah. But I really want to also recognize how hard it is to, you know, create statistical models or to create a metric that is representing a broad social construct. Like, how would you measure social cohesion in a neighborhood? Yeah. What does that even mean? What does that mean to different people? Or, yeah. or what is student engagement in a school, right? So mm. the answer here is, is with a lot of conscious, like cautious and also collaboration. And so I think the, the beauty of the data clinic model is that we're partnering our technical skills with the content area experts, right? These are the folks mm -hmm. who are, they're on the ground, they're working in these communities, they understand the nuance, the history, and the context of the project. It's really the pairing of these two things that make our work successful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing I would just like to add here is that we take a lot of time to scope projects. This is actually the most time-intensive part of the conversation, and that's because we, uh, you know, we don't operate like a consultancy. And I think that all too often data support comes in this consulting like format where, you know, there's, there's an ask, there's then a solution that's really crafted behind perhaps like closed doors and then it's presented to the organization. And again, like we're really involving our, our partners in every step. We iterate through the, the entire length of the project to make sure that what we're delivering, which could be perhaps a model, if that's at the right capacity level for our partner, it could be research insights. It could be some sort of a data dashboard that helps them kind of communicate and understand data about the audience they're serving or whatever it is um, that they're trying to do. And relying on this uh, domain expertise of our partners allows us to be agnostic to the, the content area. So we can work across different disciplines from, you know, environmental health to uh, youth training and, and women empowerment to organizations that are also just kind of starting on their data journey and trying to learn what it means to be data driven, um, all the way to those that have really large, extensive data science teams already in place. Mm -hmm. So 
the long story short of your question is that there isn't a one size fits all for what a collaboration like this is going to ultimately provide the partner. It really depends on, you know, what is the question you're trying to tackle? Um, Mm. What is your use case? What is the history? What is the data that you have or that possibly exists externally and in public format that we can use to help move your mission forward? And Mm. uh, this it's a learning process, it's a listening process, and it's really, um, you know, throughout these conversations that we get to understand the clients and then together work on scoping out a project that ultimately is going to provide them something, you know, a a tool in their toolbox, right, to move their mission forward. Totally. Yeah, I think I always think about it because I've always been very attached to the story side of, of impact, like even, you know, especially working in a remote environment right now, I've, I've said a few times, like, when you work in social impact space, and I don't know if it's, you find it the same way, but, um, sometimes I miss the tangibility, you know, the tangibility of going to, you know, an event or a conference or something and hearing how, um, how a community is, has achieved success or, um, or what outcomes they've achieved. And, and it really boils down to when you hear somebody talk about their experience and how it's supported their growth. And it, there's something so meaningful about that then, and more meaningful sometimes than I find like a, st- a statistic on, on impact because of that tangibility. Right. So yeah, I think often people look at it. Well, not often, I won't say, but a lot of people will pull the stats and then they try and drill down the story from there. And I always think about it like story first. And then I'm like, yes. okay, what does that say from an impact perspective? Because community typically doesn't communicate in, in statistics, they communicate in story. Um, and so do you find, like, do you find in some of the projects and scoping work that you're doing that you'll start with, like, this is the story, this is why it impacted me. Okay. Here's 30 stories and how it impacted me. Okay. What's the stats around? Like, what is the data that's present there? Is that, is it a lot of that? Well, I mean, it, it can be. So how you communicate impact is going to depend on, on the audience and your stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think there's one correct way to answer that question. I also think it, there's, a, there's a need to understand that measuring and demonstrating impact in numbers is actually really hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's things I can, um, you know, speak to with respect to how data clinic um, is a benefit to Two Sigma and, you know, what it does for employees and how valuable it is as an opportunity for them to kind of stretch their uh, subject matter expertise to apply methodologies to real world context, right? To, to, to give back in a way that's using their core skill sets. Those are all benefits, but they're, they're sort of intangible in the sense that you can't necessarily put a, put a number on them. Mm-hmm. So I think that, uh, you know, impact measurement, which, you know, there are folks who've been doing this for decades, um, it, but it's really challenging. And so it really has to depend on how the individual, the organization, the community defines success. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we think about a lot upfront when we're having those kind of intro conversations, scoping conversations with our partners. So for example, there might be a way to measure, you know, how many people would be impacted by a tool, right? Like how would this, um, you know, change the percent of folks you're able to get through to something like that. But there could also just be, you know, did it, did it change your data strategy? What was the impact of the culture of the organization? And I think 
this can be a little bit high level. So I wanted to maybe give it an example here of, of how this impacted an organization in a way that you don't necessarily think about when you think about social impact projects. Mm. Um, and that was, uh, you know, this is a project that actually happened a long time ago, but it's really stuck with me over time because it was not necessarily really like newsworthy or groundbreaking. But again, as I mentioned, it was able to kickstart, kickstart a, a cultural change in yeah. having an organization understand that data can be used strategically to drive decision-making. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really, that was really powerful. So we, we partnered with um, Environmental Defense Fund, which is an environmental mm-hmm. advocacy group. And uh, we sought to help them improve oil and gas well maintenance by trying mm-hmm. to identify sites that have a higher probability of experiencing a violation in the future. And we did this using open data. So that's public data that exists in the the kind of data ecosphere. Um, This is not something that EDF had to capture on their own or to spend a lot of money trying to try to collect this data. Um, And what we did is we built a model to predict future violations. And this then allowed state inspectors who have very limited resources to you know, target their efforts to specific well sites that are more likely to, to experience a problem. Mm-hmm. And as a result of this partnership, EDF, as I mentioned before, really, really experienced like a cultural shift. So internal kind of leadership support for using data to make decisions grew. And as a result of all this work, um, the Department of Environmental Protection, along with some local universities, convened with EDF to understand the findings of this work. Um, They built a a shared research strategy to improve the quality of this inspection data moving forward. And for me, it really exemplified a low lift exercise to, Mm -hmm. to kick off this data forward strategy. And I think that this points to the importance of really starting small, laying a foundation by building a proof of concept, executing on that proof of concept, and then taking the next step. So again, when we're talking about impact and what matters, it's not actually the big flashy number in this example at all. It's, it's the story. It's the, it's the story of how this work then spurred additional work, convened cross-sector partnerships to improve the quality of open data and really uh, identify the utility of, of using data to, to kind of move your mission forward. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And I think we often don't give the right, like there's not enough nods to that tiny little step. And that's really what this podcast is about. It's like that tiny little step forward that really, you know, catalyzed change and, and created something, something beautiful in this case, you know, whoever, you know, whoever's involved with the project could say, oh, it was this that was, you know, it was the scoping mechanism or it was this data or, but yeah, really drilling it back down to, you know, this by bringing the right people together and and spending enough time together. It was about understanding where we could direct our energy. And then, and that resulted in this and that resulted in that and, and sort of it's the domino effect. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I just wanted to add one more thing there because I think, um, you know, when we, we hear a lot about, you know, data in this kind of what I like to call pop data science way. So we hear about, you know, the, the promise and the perils of big data and machine yeah. learning and artificial yeah. intelligence and all these things, right? And it's, yeah. it's so easy to think that this is what you need or this mm. is the answer to all the problems. But I mean, what we tell our partners and what we advocate on a daily basis is that typically the most impactful and the most meaningful approach 
is one that's going to be very simple. It's mm-hmm. going to be interpretable and therefore it's going to be actionable. Mm-hmm. So you need to always start with the challenge, not with the data, not with the methodology. What exactly are you trying to solve for? And then match the approach to that task at hand. And it can't go the other way around. So, mm-hmm. you know, at data clinic, we are certainly not in the business of throwing data at the wall, seeing what sticks. It's, it's really an, it's an intentional process And that means that hopefully the end result is going to be a deliverable, whatever it is, whatever we've agreed upon, whatever makes sense with the capacity of that partner. But hopefully that deliverable, that solution is going to make an actual difference. Mm. And it's, you know, it's, it's something that I think as a culture, we, we hear a lot of this stuff, but really it's the simple steps. It's descriptive statistics is just trying to understand your audience a little bit better um, and provide those insights that'll, that'll make your work hopefully more effective. Yeah. Um, and do you find, like, I think about this with my not for my previous not-for-profit hat on, there's almost like two, there's almost two types of data. I feel like in not-for-profit, like what goes in the annual report and then like yeah. what's actually driving decision-making. And I remember I'd sit around or in a room and talk about annual report and you'd be like, okay, this statistic sounds really cool. Like, you know, whatever <laughs> thousands of people reached and it doesn't really mean anything, but it was about creating an emotional response to, to a number um, you, you talked about how we're in a place in the world where it's like open data. And, and actually I would, I actually, before I get into this, I would love to ask you like, for those who don't know, what is open data? Yeah, sure. So I, I would say that there's been a real movement to make and, and democratize data. And so open data is, is the result of this. And it's really spearheaded by um, kind of innovative uh, local state and federal agencies that put out their administrative data in, in a public fashion, of course, mm. making sure that there's no personally identifiable data or anything sensitive in them. But they put that out there for the public to use. And at Data Clinic, we are huge proponents of open data. Um, we think it's a really untapped resource, but it's also really important to understand the, the origins of the data, why how the data was created, and, and therefore what biases are in the data, what it can and can't do. So um, if you think about administrative data, you know, New York City has an open data portal. If anyone's curious about open data, I suggest you go look up your local open data portal and see what they have. Mm -hmm. Um, As I mentioned, New York City has has a great open data portal, and and we've worked closely with the mayor's office of data analytics to to continue to use that as a resource. But... um, there's, you know, information such as a tree census of all the trees. There's um, data on restaurant inspections. There's, there's even a squirrel census, a squirrel census, which is pretty cool, right? So there's all this really interesting data that was collected um, as, as part of some program from some department or some agency. And so that data is then deemed, uh, you know, not sensitive and it's put out there to the public to to use for research or capacity building or for community organizations to use. And it's great. Um, But, you know, there are a lot of challenges with it in the sense that it wasn't necessarily collected for the reason you're looking for. So when you're trying to, you know, find data on your specific challenge, it may or may not work. You also have to recognize that it was collected for a different purpose than maybe you want to put it to use. So, um, you know, things to keep in mind, but I do think that we uh, should do a better job of, of checking out open data portals um, and seeing what's there before you really go through all the, the trouble and the cost of standing up your own 
data ecosystems, you know, that might not be necessary. Mm-hmm. And like with the EDF case, that was again using open data um, to prove that, you know, data can be really, uh, you know, important in moving your mission forward. And so I think that often open data can be used as a proof of concept and to build Mm. this kind of business use case that could uh, then have more buy-in and and you can develop more resources for these things. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, that's a really great point. I, it's so funny, you know, going back to like university days, right? Like how many times did you look up and not really realize what you were accessing? So yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, the squirrel census thing is hilarious and <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> like now I'm wondering what's in our open data portal here in Alberta, but yes, check yeah, it out. <laughs> but, yeah, I really should. Yeah. How many, how many squirrels exist in, in my city? Um, and, and what is the, what is how's the population going? <laughs> so funny. Um, what is, what is, how did data clinic, you know, come to be, you said it's a, it's a pro bono data and tech for good arm of, of two Sigma. I love these stories about how these yeah. initiatives come to be and, you know, how, how does an organization get to a point where they, where they hire someone like you, a director of, of the data clinic to do yeah. pro bono work and like, how does it prioritize? So yeah, let's talk about that. Where, how did it, how did it come together? Yeah. I mean, it has a fantastic origin story that I, I love telling. So I'm glad you asked. Um, but I, I do believe that, you know, that story and its its past has really led to its longer term success. And so um, Data Clinic was actually established by a group of Two Sigma employees from across the firm, different departments back in 2014. And it was formed as part of this uh, internal contest we used to have at Two Sigma for for innovation. Mm. And the group really started small. They started working with Donors Choose, which was our first uh, external partner. And ultimately they won the contest. And so that this group then, which was you know, made up of all volunteers at this point, uh, worked over the course of the next couple of years to partner with roughly two, sometimes three organizations a year. And they were able to demonstrate that there is both demand externally from organizations who could benefit from this type of support and also internally from Two Sigma employees who really wanted to be involved and engaged on a project. So their hard work paid off and Data Clinic transformed from a volunteer-led initiative to the current dedicated team we have today. And I'm just feel really uh, lucky to be a part of it. It's, it's a pretty unique model. And I think one that, um, you know, started out small, it's been able to grow organically. And I really do think that this has an impact on where we are, the success we've had and, and where we're going to go in the future. So, mm. yeah. If you had to, you know, on that, like if you had to say, you know, what of the history has affected the current state, like what, what would you say that is? Well, I think that these, there's, there's a lot of um, focus on, you know, corporate social responsibility and ESG and DEI efforts. And I think that for the most part, many of them are formed as an afterthought or yeah. formed from, uh, you know, in, in leadership and then sort of trickle down. And so I think that what we did is, is sort of the opposite, right? We have brought Two Sigma management pretty much along for the ride. Yeah. And we can point to this, this proven track record of impact, both again, mm-hmm. externally for the partners and then internally by demonstrating, you know, the value that this sort of a 
work or this sort of work has on employees and to Two Sigma mm -hmm. as, a, as a whole. And so I think that it's actually really hard to establish this type of buy-in without, Agreed. you know, evidence in hand. And so yeah. I think that's really been a bit of a differentiator for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always think that I know corporate, like corporate is always top down. Actually, not-for-profit is often too. Develop this strategy, then create the framework, then create the implementation plan. And, and, you know, hope people get along for the ride. And I've always approached it, like, I've always, always approached it from grassroots up. And I think that's like, I, I used to work for an organization that always talked about creating movement. And I was like, look, and they always show the same video of this person dancing at a music festival. And like, <laughs> how this one person started dancing, and then another person started dancing. And we're like, we're sitting in a big corporate room with 500 employees saying like, we want to start the movement. Yeah, and I let's was like, dance. <laughs> but I was like, but who's dancing? Like, I like, is every are all the leaders going to get up and dance and yeah. everyone's going to follow or like really, I, I almost thought I was like, the, the concept here is lost. Like we have not started from bottom up. We've this, like the, there's a disconnect here. And, um, and I often don't find that it, that it works that way. Like I think when companies go top down, it's when you're driving something for the ESG results or you're driving it for, you know, let's even say like the ROI and we don't social impact CSR work isn't, I don't know if it is, but it, in my opinion, I, I haven't found that it's studied enough to say like that the grassroots piece is so essential. We talk a lot about employee engagement and why that's yeah. relevant, but we don't talk about like, what is the ROI on the employee engagement? And like, how do we get people to care about that more? Um, yeah. So yeah, kudos. I think the, the grassroots up approach and <laughs> you coming in later, like how important is it for you to recognize that, right? Oh yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, I have a. I, it's a bit of a roundabout way of how I how I got to to Sigma. Um, I actually have a, a background in public health epidemiology and made a big career pivot to join Two Sigma, which mm. took a little bit of thinking on my part for sure. Yeah. Um, but I knew about Data Clinic prior to joining Two Sigma mm. and made it my mission within you know the first couple weeks of joining to volunteer on a project. So I did that. Mm, cool. And had just an incredible time. I mean, getting to know folks from across the firm, which isn't, uh, you know, typically part of your day job, yeah. working with a community partner to kind of drive their work forward and to support them in this incredible work. And then um, at, almost at the end of the, the project was when Data Clinic became a fully resourced team and we're looking, they were looking for someone to, to lead it. And I, I absolutely jumped up and, and ran to that opportunity. So, um, I think, you know, if it hadn't been for the, the really hard work of all those volunteers at the beginning, we wouldn't be where we are now. And um, most of them are actually still around and on our um, board of advisors and still to, to sit in and some of the presentations and to support our work, which is which is a nice way of having that continuity. Mm, I love that so much. That's incredible. Um yeah, I just, what a really good approach to, I mean, and, and that's like, it's classically talked about, you join a big company, you get to know everybody, but it's not often in the onboarding plan. Hey, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What made you want to make the switch? Like that's, and also I, this is my bias. I feel like someone who came from like epidemiology and, you know, a real focus in public health, because I've worked with a few folks in public health. Like there's a bit, there's a large thinking process that happens between making a, a swift change in any direction um, yeah. maybe that, maybe that isn't, is that your, would you agree with that? Does that embody your, 
Are you more spontaneous and fall outside of my box in my head? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm just right in that like average. Uh, yeah, I take a long time to think about things. Um, and, you know, I was so I was working for, you know, decades or so in, in public health nonprofit space at hospitals. And um, the opportunity, I actually had a, a really good friend who worked at Two Sigma and said, hey, we're doing some really innovative, really great stuff. Um, I think they could use someone like you. Um, I focused on geospatial modeling and trying to understand the interplay and the connections between, uh, you know, people, their community, the environment and health outcomes. And so I was uh, always interested cool. in trying to model these complex relationships, which is re really hard to do, of course. Totally. Um, but I loved kind of thinking about that space and the connection between environment and community and health. Um, so it, it took me about a year actually to, uh, <laughs> consider this opportunity and, and ultimately decide to pivot. And, yeah. you know, I, I never would have foreseen back in my earlier days, uh, that I would move from public health and into finance that just didn't seem like that was, uh, going to be the reality. But, um, to be honest, there was a lot of innovation in, in, in data science approaches and methodology that was happening at Two Sigma and, and other, companies and it it frankly just wasn't really happening in my field and mm. so I ultimately was excited to um, take the opportunity to, to learn to really grow these skill sets and then to kind of uh, pivot back at some point and to apply them to to public health mm. I wonder if you're gonna and do you think you'll have a problem like not a problem but do you think it'll be hard to switch from like moving in this new space probably a bit faster probably a bit more agility and going back to the the pace of epidemiology <laughs> and well, public like okay, I won't even say epidemiology because I'm I'm not gonna lie I don't know a lot about epidemiology <laughs> but but the pace of public health. <laughs> well, I actually think that there has been incredible movement over the mm. last five years or so. I've been at Two Sigma a little over six years, and I think wow. that um, with the advances in kind of computing and and the lower thresholds and to to, to kind of entering into this space, there's been incredible innovation and there's a lot that can be done. And I think, you know, even talking with some of our partners who are in the, the public health space, like what they want to do and the data they have access to with electronic medical records and, and all yeah. of this stuff is just wouldn't be possible, uh, you know, five years ago. So yeah. I think that the, the space is, is ripe for more of these cross-sector partnerships. And I, I do believe that there's a real value add in, in having, you know, the kind of public space and the for-profit space and the nonprofit space working together to solve these things, more folks at the table um, to, to really try to, to move these big challenges forward. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what the, what the future holds. I think uh, as we <laughs> live, live through COVID and all of its after effects and, and current effects, I guess, but, you yeah. know, the, the importance of data and public health and infections and all of that is becoming much more apparent to society, totally. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right. It is becoming more apparent. And also like with, with I mean, if the last two year, two years hasn't proven how quickly things can move. Um, I mean, like systems can now move at, well, just slightly slower than the speed of a pandemic, right? Like yeah. that's really where we're at. So it's pretty yeah. impressive. Um, when you think you had said something earlier about how um, public narrative around data, I remember like AI when I was in, um, when I was back in university and we would do projects with not-for-profits as well. 
um, and working with not-for-profits and some of their problems. And they'd be like, AI, AI, we're using AI. It was kind of like just something <laughs> to throw into your books to, to yes. receive funding. Um, you're talking about how a lot of organizations are really attached to it, um, to big, complex, but new and shiny and exciting um, I'll say data words, <laughs> yeah. Maybe without always understanding what they mean and what they entail. Um, what is the alternative to that? Like, we're, when you start these conversations, like you're sitting down with me. I'm a not for profit. I'm like, we want to use AI. What's your like? Hold your horses. Let's try X instead first. Right. Sure. So I think that um, again, it really starts with questions as opposed to an approach. So. Yeah. There has been a lot of innovation in this field, um, and there will continue to be, but, but frankly, we're not really there where these types of approaches are going to be useful to the vast majority of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, what's, you know, it's, it's sexy to talk about AI and machine learning mm-hmm. and deep learning and all these things. So that's what people hear. That's like what the news headlines are, are talking about. And so ultimately, um, as the kind of sophistication in these sort of methodologies continues, there's a a need to kind of catch up on how they should be used in a responsible way. Um, And I think that, you know, you asked about the alternative. I think the most simple pragmatic approach to solving a, a research question or a challenge or a problem that a partner brings is going to be the best one. Mm. And often that is simply what we call like descriptive statistics or exploratory data analysis, where we're just getting, you know, we're understanding on aggregate trends in their data on a very low level that they can interpret. So Mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, we worked with an organization that really was um, trying to engage, uh, trying to um, further civic engagement by um, having folks sign up on their platform to uh, vote. And then ultimately they wanted to see how many of those folks actually registered and then actually voted. Mm. And so, you know, there's lots of ways you can think about moving their mission forward, but simply taking a step back, looking at their data, seeing who they were reaching, were they reaching the target population, were there um, mm. socioeconomic differences in the types of folks who are signing up on their platform. Like they, they were really, they wanted to engage, um, you know, BIPOC populations and uh, folk, like younger voters in, in college areas. And so were they reaching those people? So just simply looking at your data and trying to see if the assumptions or the things that you assume is going on, right? Like to yeah. gut check those assumptions using data by crafting very simple research hypotheses and then testing out those hypotheses is a way to really provide you with a lot of information. Totally. So, I mean, I, what's AI, right? Like what's, you know, and for the, <laughs> like, you know, an, an algorithm can just simply be an equation, right? Yeah. That's, there's no, like the, the, there's, there's a lot of hype around these things. They are, um, you know, data, terms, as you point out, that people put in grants to make it sound really cool and innovative. But frankly, like a really simple model or just some descriptive statistics about your population um, or understanding the connection between, you know, two different variables or two different things um, is really often where folks need to start to lay the foundation of where they want to go. Yeah. And probably to like, like you said, inform those early data driven decisions, right? Like, okay, you're not reaching this crew. Like why? Great. Now that information is provided, like that information is now provided to you. Now what's the learning from that? Great. Let's start there instead of jumping into like machine learning and AI. 
Right. I mean, I think the other confusion there is that often these approaches don't have a kind of conceptual framework behind them. So it's a lot of, you have all this big data, let's mine it for insights or let's mine it and see how it, you know, whatever the outcome is without really having a kind of theoretical framework in place. And so that's really the the place where we start. We say, okay, so you are the contact area experts here. You are the folks on the ground doing this day in and day out. What do you think is happening? Like, what do you want to learn? Do you think that this causes this? Or do you think there's something else getting in the way? Like, let's just talk about what you think is happening and create sort of a schematic of, you know, the, the kind of the levers and then what happens, right? Yes. The inputs and the outputs. And then we can try to test those things. If there's data that's available, if we feel that we can create a metric to, you know, again, these are a lot of social constructs, which are hard to measure. So there's a lot of caveats and a lot of limitations and a lot of bias that's like inherent in some of this work. So you need to be really upfront with those things. But ultimately, let's test out those things and kind of gut check, again, those, those assumptions of what you think is happening. When you have kind of a machine learning or, you know, some of these other what we kind of refer to as these black box algorithms, you don't understand why things are happening. So you maybe understand the output, the prediction, whatever it is, but you don't know why the prediction is going in that direction or this direction, what's influencing it. And that makes it really hard to be actionable. How How can you then turn around and say to the rest of your org, well, we know that, for example, you know, violations are going up here. Why? Well, we don't know. They just are. So what are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And you're right. Like that's exactly, that's exactly what it is. Then there's probably a lot of, like I, my first jump would be like, well, it's probably because of this, like, or the research says this, and this is where we should focus. Let's test that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start there first, right? You think yeah. that this is causing that. Let's test that if we can. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, it's all about starting simple and, um, you know, there's that old adage about statistical models that like all models are, are wrong, but some of them are, are useful. And, and that's mm. true. And so the more interpretable your model can be, the more you understand the, the relationships that are going on to, you know, create that outcome, whatever it is, then the more mm. you're going to be able to take that information and turn it around into insights and actions. Right. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's I key. Often, I often wonder even with models, like especially you know traditionally academic models around data um and this is i remember always learning that like the model is to inform decision making that's the purpose of the model the the model does not like maybe maybe you're gonna be like actually you're wrong but (laughs) in my mind i'm like the model isn't always the path forward the model isn't always the strategy or the outcome is to accomplish the model or to set out the outcomes of the model, though it may feel that way. It's to inform decision-making and to say like, okay, your data aligns with, you know, this model and the model isn't your proof point. So like I super basic level, let's, let's even say like a SWOT analysis, like you do this SWOT analysis and it's supposed to inform decision-making about how to proceed. It's not supposed to be like the Bible for how you now like live this program and live this, live this way forward. Like it's, and I think sometimes that gets convoluted in, um, in social impact spaces. 
Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's really true. And you know, the important part of all our work, and I, and I hope I've made this really clear, is that we're not sort of replacing the humans, right? Mm. We're not replacing the humans in the loop, the content area folks, the decision makers. What we're doing is trying to kind of uh, support them Mm -hmm. in moving their work forward um, and to provide additional insights. Um, But, you know, there's, you can't ever replace that human in the loop. Like that's so important. And so, um, you know, models without the context, the history, and understanding of the biases inherent in the data, all that stuff are, are worthless. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I would agree with that. They are just a piece of the puzzle and, and hopefully the data and, and technology can be used to, to support mission-driven organizations to be more effective and efficient in what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowhere does that mean leaving, leaving the humans out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The data is only great. The frameworks are fine, but we're still important. <laughs> we yes. still have a purpose in this world. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, when you think about, and you know, final question for today, when you think about what's going to work you out of a job. And I always ask that question because it's like, it was, I remember it was the way that originally when they said, you know, mission, vision, values, your value, your, your vision is what's going to work you out of a job. Like what, and I think this resonates a lot for people who do purpose-driven work because for them, this is like, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, what's your intention? Um, so what is it for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, know, always, I, think- yes, I always feel like when people say that's a great question, they're like, that's a, that's a thinker. Like, yeah, like that's a, like, that's uh that's, that could go in many different ways for me is what I'm thinking right now. Nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Thinker is a good one. Um, but I, I, you know, look, I'd, I'd love to see a day where, you know, data and engineering capacity is not, you know, for the most part restricted to for-profit companies. Mm. And, and I honestly believe we're moving in the right direction with more folks, especially younger generations starting their technical careers, really seeking to find this, this purpose-driven work, right? Like wanting to work in organizations aligned with purpose. Mm. Um, but I think that it's going to require a lot bigger effort from, you know, funders and grantees um, to build data capacity and data strategy, like explicitly into these funding mechanisms Hmm. um, so that, you know, organizations are really incentivized and can afford to have in-house data and tech support. Hmm. Um, And I think even if, you know, the day comes where this one-on-one project-based support is, is not needed, and I sure hope that that day does come, um, I mentioned earlier, and I really do feel that the importance of these data collaborations across the public sector, the for-profit, the nonprofit sectors are going to continue to be absolutely crucial to solving the really big challenges that we face as a society. So a I don't think I'm planning on, you know, retiring or anytime in the near or far future. Time. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It was so wonderful to have you um, on today and thank you for taking time out of your morning. Um, just, yeah, really excited to learn from you and, and to learn about a topic that I definitely struggle to wrap my head around sometimes. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Have a good one, Rachel. All right. You too. Man, what a great discussion. You can follow Nuance of Impact on Instagram. Bye for now.